Welcome to the Urban Golf Podcast. It's Mac Todd here. I'm here with Leo Rooney, and it's uh, another beautiful day here in the studio. How's it going, everyone? You know, this <laughs> these fires have been the real deal here in Southern California. At least, I mean, at least for us here, it's uh, it's been ashy, it's been smoky, but people are still out golfing. Yeah, and we saw those pictures from Napa at Safeway Ope, and when it looked like it was a you know a, a Hollywood movie from some kind of very demonic world at 11 a.m., completely dark and ash and ash and everywhere. So it's been crazy, but now it's US, U.S. Open week. Yeah, and you know, sending obviously prayers to everybody affected by these fires and and all the stuff that's happened. And and you know, it's it's been everybody's all in different situations, but it's just one thing after another. But you know, this is uh, an exciting time for golf. It's been pretty sweet to watch what's happened on the PGA Tour. You know, with Dustin Johnson and with our guy Colin Morikawa, and you know, this it's it's pretty sweet to see the storylines in golf and and how many different things are going on. And we got a pretty nice stretch coming up too. So the season ends and. We still got two majors left. Yeah, I, I feel like it kind of works without the crowds, don't you think? It kind of works on TV. Oh, yeah, actually. And I, I think for the, for the most part, uh, most of the sports, I mean, we watched the NFL kick back up again. I watched the Cowboys and the Rams yesterday. And it was just like, yeah, it's actually not just golf, but most sports seem to be pretty entertaining. You know, that U.S. Open final was, you know, in tennis was yeah, I saw that. It's badass. I mean, that thing went five sets and, you know, he was down two sets to nothing and came back and won in a tiebreaker in the fifth set. I mean, it was epic proportions. But yeah, I mean, there's there's some element that I feel like is missing, but but it doesn't definitely doesn't kill the experience as a viewer. I mean, there, you're still there to watch the sport and watch these guys play at the highest level. Yeah. What's up with the struggles on the American tennis side? I guess the women's side are great, but the men's have struggled for a while now. It's European domination. Yeah, is Andy Roddick's not still out there? <laughs> <laughs> is Andre Agassi not still a thing? No Pete Sampras? Uh, no. You know, this this pandemic is going to bring out some maybe something different too, though. Like, tennis had a huge thing in the 80s, and that's why we saw those stars come out in the 90s and, and early 2000s, Americans. But, you know, I think tennis is one of those sports that people are getting into. I mean, all the tennis programs all over the country, just like golf, they're, they're packed. You know, people yeah. looking for building new skills. I know, you know, I have my kids in some junior golf camps here, and they're all full. So, you know, it's one of those socially distanced activities, same as tennis. So I think that, yeah, the American tennis problem is a marketing thing. And I think that in a lot of ways, you know, they haven't done a very good job of, of developing the talent here. Because, you, again, you don't see any in the top 10 in the world, right? Well, and then they're converting all the courts to pickleball courts. That's the <laughs> fastest growing sport in the nation or something like that. So as long as we don't focus too much on pickleball, we'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, but I do the U.S. Open. You know, Collins, one of the favorites going into it, which is crazy. You know, they're getting ready there. I saw Tiger warming up, playing with his shirt untucked, hanging out. Collins' agent just sent a video to us of the rough. And the ball definitely disappears. And... From what I hear, the course is just so long and so tough. And this is the conversation every time U.S. Open week. But uh, apparently yeah, they said eight over. They said eight over. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're hearing. The superintendent said eight over, apparently, at <laughs> Wingfoot this year to win it. You know, you, you always get surprised how good the, those guys are. I mean, even the, when they struggle, they just, if you hit it straight and you figure on, it doesn't really matter what course you're on, right? Like, Obviously, it's gonna, the scores are going to be higher because of the greens and the rough, but 
I don't know if you remember like Brooks Kepka just I forgot which tournament that one of the PGAs I think he just like literally didn't matter where he hit it he was just ripping it out of the rough I mean when they're these guys are on and they're rolling the rock I mean that's really what it is you just gotta make putts so if you're putting well because they're gonna have a lot of like you know four to eight footers for par yeah. so if you make those momentum changes you get a little bit you get a little hot they, all of them can get hot and stick it close even when the greens are fast and hard so you can get some reel some birdies off but it's all about making those par putts yeah, hopefully Tiger comes back a little bit. We'll see. And I mean, Phil, I'm, just ha- I'm just happy the fact that he's playing and that Phil, I mean, I love Phil Mickelson bouncing around, has his coffee for wellness company with Dave Phillips, and he's winning senior tour events. I'm like, man, I'm old. Because <laughs> I remember when those guys were all young studs. and um, He won last time at Wingfoot, right? That's the, that's the whole conversation, no, 2006? Or no, what, no, why is he no, saying that? No, he's, no, that was when his epic meltdown. He had a two-shot lead going to the last hole, and he double bogey the last hole and lost the U.S. Open. It's the one. Uh, it's the why. one tournament he hasn't. It's the one major he hasn't won. That's right. Yeah. So he needs. That's why he, he's joking about. He's it. got. He has got like six six second places in U.S. Open. So it's just. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, hey. So today we had Danny Wax, good friend of ours and the founder of Four Links, which is essentially the, in a lot of ways, described as a LinkedIn meets golf now or a Facebook meets golf now. It's like social network for booking tea times and a, and a, and a club experience. Now they've dabbled into, you know, into online betting and, and things like that. And, and sort of, you know, kind of the golf draft stuff. Um, yeah. But, fantasy sports. Yeah. But you know, cool, cool, really cool dude. One of the better players I've ever met in my life, professional golfer, amateur golf, whatever. I mean, he's, he is, uh, uh, we've seen him tear it up quite a few times and, and just like one of the best ball strikers I've ever met. Yeah, yeah. I think he played college golf in Colorado. Played and Denver, then, yeah. Yeah, and then played a couple of years on. Uh, I mean, at the highest level. I think he actually played at Napa. That event in Napa. That was his only PGA Tour event. He said on on Instagram the other day. But super good ball striker. And now it's he has an interesting background because he grew up playing at Brentwood, and then now he's running this a tea time company for links, and he's kind of against private country clubs. So it's a it's an interesting dichotomy, and and his views on it are very interesting. We go into you know the private country club model, the semi-private, and the public, and kind of how he thinks semi-private is 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 not really a thing, which is kind of funny. And he's really trying to make the game more accessible, and potentially having some of these lower tier. B and C tier country clubs become more accessible for for the public. Yeah, I mean, as much as you know, he like you said, he's grown up at these clubs. He's he played you know played college golf, played professionally. He's seen the whole gamut, but he really, you know, and I agree with him in a lot of ways. Like, how do you, you know, some of this stuff? Like, how do you bypass the pro shop experience where you're like standing there, it's awkward, and you're paying for your tea time? And like, how do you how do you make booking a tea time and 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 also how do you get people to play with and all this different stuff that i think the golf courses could be doing and that's what he's saying is that look this this is there needs to be accessibility and also like our generation and i guess you know and and the younger generations don't want to they're not aspiring to join a private club they're they're aspiring to meet network and 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 build their community and play different courses and stuff like that not play the same course every day you know, and, and get, you know, get a slice of deli meat and a vodka tonic, you know, it's like the, the, the world is changing. The, 
and the the way that people experience and connect with golf is changing there's these concepts like new club up in chicago there's these different you know businesses out there that are built and cultivated around the modern golf club experience because the generation it's not like they're they want to like you know not have their shirts tucked in all this stuff they actually like respect the traditions and love the traditions of the game want to learn the values of the game but they don't want all this arbitrary red tape everywhere they want to actually play the game engage with it have fun and not have it feel pretentious. And I think in a lot of ways, what Danny's doing is great for the game. And whether it's whether it's through four links or just his personality, he's out to grow the game and make it more inclusive. Yeah, and, and how sustainable is it for the younger generation to pay $250,000 to join a club? That might not be the model of the future, uh, unless you're a Pine Valley, Augusta, LACC, Riv, Oakmont. Like Those tier A courses are always going to be there. Those are uh, exclusive clubs that will never go away. But these uh, lower tier country clubs are most likely changing and evolving. And they kind of have to change and evolve in order to survive. So we talked a lot about that and how Four Links is kind of working on that and pushing for that. So really interesting conversation around the golf industry in general. Yep. Yeah, enjoy enjoy the chat, guys. It was, it was a good one and something that's always, I think, brought up in uh, – you know, in circles uh, around the game, around country clubs, around, you know, the public golf experience. And so we get into all that stuff and hope you all enjoy and have a great week and stay safe. See you next week. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I mean, I love to be on it. You guys have pulled some amazing guests and, you know, happy to have some friendly banter on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, I, I remember when I first met you and you talked about Four Links and how it, in the beginning it was like a you know, social network for golfers kind of in a way for golfers and executives to meet. And then it kind of morphed into this other thing. Can you talk a little bit about how Four Links started and, and what you guys are doing now? Yeah, I mean, with any internet business, I think it's pretty easy to iterate and pivot into a different direction you know, uh, based on user feedback. So, you know, we've always kept a very, very close ear to what our customers are saying. And that's always kind of dictated the direction of the business. But when I first started Forlinks, you know, I really wanted to find a way to accomplish one kind of main goal, and that's help people play more golf. And when we first launched, it was really about meeting like-minded people in your in your field. I mean, if you're in real estate, if you're in, uh, if you're a doctor, if you're in different categories, you could find them, connect with them and play golf nearby. And that was the kind of jumping point for the concept. And from there, you know, we saw that there was a lot of competition in kind of the social network space, as well as in the online tea time space with golf now and tee off and Supreme golf and all these other competitors that we really needed to approach it in a very different way. So, you know, from the social network, we kind of transitioned into this unlimited all you can eat golf membership. And that was growing like wildfire. And, you know, it was just not a sustainable business. I mean, look at movie pass is probably the best example conceptually for the consumer. Amazing. But from the, you know, a business fundamental standpoint, it's terrible. I think they went bankrupt and, you know, it may not even be around anymore. So, you know, that was kind of the, the idea of trying different things, iterating on the fly. And now 
we finally feel like we found kind of a concept where we've blended people's passion for watching live PGA Tour golf and playing golf. So you know, now people can use these four links points that we've created that's a, a currency, bet on the PGA Tour and use their winnings to book tee time. So you know, from being a social connectivity tool to now gambling on the PGA Tour and booking tee times, it feels like we're in a different world. But at the end of the day, our, our mission is still the same, which is we want to help people play more golf. Where did the where did the concept come from, Danny? And kind of maybe explain a little bit about your background in golf and, and sort of how that led you into entrepreneurship. Yeah, I, I started golf a little late, I guess, in kind of comparison to some other you know pros or people who have played their whole life. I, I picked it up around 14 years old, played college golf at the University of Denver, and just kind of continuously got better through my college experience and went through Q school in 2010 and played three years on the nationwide tour. And, you know, ultimately did not like the lifestyle that came with being a professional golf and always kind of viewed it as more of a hobby I was good at versus a profession. And, you know, kind of always had this entrepreneurial mindset and wanted to blend a passion for technology and golf. And that's kind of where the initial idea of Four Links came about. Hmm. And, you know, your, your career as a, as a player, as you look back at it, you know, late bloomer, and then just kind of really took off in college years. Is there any, when you look back at that time, what do you, what do you feel? Do you feel any regrets or great, you know, gratitude or... How do you look at your golf career? I mean, golf has provided me with so much, not only good friends, but life lessons. So, I mean, I have no regrets at all. I mean, I wouldn't change my experience for anything. There are things, you know, now later, as you get older, you can look back on and kind of learn from it and point at them and say, I could have done this better or worked harder on kind of this piece of my game or, or really just kind of through experience, you pick up things you know, learning how to manage your time, your schedule, you name it. So, I mean, it's tough when you see people that you are beating on a regular basis, you know, now winning PGA Tour events, but, you know, I'm happy with what I'm doing now. And at the end of the day, this is what kind of motivates me and challenges me. So, like I said, no, no regrets on, on my behalf. What was yeah. the biggest strength of your game out there? I would say, I mean, overall, just kind of ball striking. I always hit it very solid. You know, tee to green was always very good. You know, never got myself in too much trouble. But, you know, that's kind of something that you can look back on now is, you know, I would probably work on my strengths when that's not the philosophy you should have. You know, you should be working on your weaknesses and letting your strengths shine. So, you know, when I probably needed to chip and putt and kind of really work on my mental game, you know, those were things that kind of got neglected uh, through the process. Yeah. Yeah. I was smiling because when you said that, I was thinking about our pro, pro-am round with Robert Streb. Uh, <laughs> I love Robert. I mean, he's had a great career. Yeah. No, but I think you beat him that day. I mean, um, hey, he was playing from the championship tees. Nice, nice. Uh, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Yeah, but still, I mean, 78 to 65 is just, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> tip it out or not. Hey. Uh, well, Danny, I'm curious as to, you know, as I want to really talk about four links with you and talk about, you know, the, the concept of the country club and public golf and where the future of golf goes. But before we get into that, can you talk a little bit about how, I know for me, building a business, so much of 
the principles I took from playing high level competitive golf, college golf, professional golf, taking them into the business has been a big part of my success. Just kind of like failing and failing over and over again and still having like the motivation the next day. It's like, oh, that was just part of the process. You know, can you talk about how your golfing experience, your playing experience has helped you in kind of the grind of building a business? Yeah, I mean, without failure, there's really no opportunity to learn, right? Like those are the moments that you need to really cherish and look at and take a deep dive into and see how you can kind of emerge from it uh, better than you were before. So for me, I think golf is one of those sports where you truly rarely ever win. Like, uh, I mean, you could go your whole career, make a ton of money and, and never really win a PGA Tour event. So yeah, I think that that's something to be said about the game. And obviously, like persistence. And I don't know if it was Ben Hogan or who said it, but like the most important shot in golf is your next one. And I think that rings true with business as well. It's like you kind of need to keep your eye on the long-term vision, but also stay present in the moment. So, you know, there, there's a lot of correlation between golf and business and golf and life. Yeah, I, I think of when you say that, I think of like Simon Sinek talks about a business as the infinite game. And this whole idea where, you know, in, in terms of competition and trying to understand like, when is there a winner and a loser? And he goes in business, there's not winners and losers. The game doesn't have any, any start or end. And where that comes from in a lot of ways is institutional funding and exits and all this different thing. But to really build a good sustainable business, you have to look at it as though it's this infinite game that you're playing. And, and in golf, so much of it is like that. You're constantly evolving and improving your game relative to where you are today. And, and in, it's also an imperfect game. Like you're never going to perfect golf. There's always going to be things you can continue to work on. And you're always going to walk off the course with, I left something out there or I could have done this better. You know, so uh, I, like I said, you know, to Leo's question about like, you know, are there any regrets or anything like that? No, because it's taught me so much about what I, what I know today and who I am today. And it's cool, too, because it, it, the game teaches you so many intangibles, right? Like the interpersonal skills and uh, discipline and respect and integrity. You know, it, it really can shape you as a person in so many different ways. Without a doubt. And, and like even the, the social side of golf is very valuable of how to interact with someone. You know, I think you see someone's true colors when you're out on the golf course with them how they yeah. handle adversity, you know, how they're handling winning, how they're handling playing poorly. So, you know, I'm forever grateful that my grandpa and my dad introduced me to the game. And, and it even, you know, speaking of my grandpa and my dad, like at a very early age, it, it teaches you how to interact with your elders. Like I was around yeah. people who were a lot older than me as a young kid. And, and that was something that, you know, I, I think that I can go into any room with any age group and be able to hold, hold the conversation. And I owe a lot of that to just the time I spent, you know, at the golf course. Yeah, no, it's so true. I, I, I mean, I'm sure all three of us, like at 12 years old, or I guess 14 years old for you, Danny, like playing with 55 year olds, because there's nobody else to play with. I remember I would just go, you know, at tea time and there's, I mean, there's no other people to play with than, you know, 60 year olds and 40 year olds. And, and that was my life, you know? Without a doubt. And, and, you know, to our point earlier, things just kind of naturally rub off. And imagine you being a, a 12 or 14 year old playing with a bunch of guys who are 50 and 60. And the conversation is very different. 
Yeah. You're hearing things that you're not going to hear on the elementary school playground. A hundred percent. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And it's great. I mean, it's just that, that idea that, you know, you're, the game is so social and it's not where you aren't necessarily playing with just people that your age or your size or whatever. It can bridge everybody. And that's, that's the beautiful part about it and the lessons you can take. So what are some of the lessons that you learned maybe playing with your dad, your grandpa, some of the older guys growing up, some of the things that you can really remember? I mean, obviously, respect. I mean, that was something that took a while to learn. You know, I was one to throw my club, break my clubs, cuss, you know, just kind of take out those, you know, those emotions on other people. And, you know, at least now, you know, being 33, I can look back and admit that. And I think that's a big step to it as well as kind of the self-reflection. So to me, it kind of taught me how to like harness my emotions and keep moving forward and be persistent and take those failures and turn them into ways to learn from them. How did you, how did you manage kind of getting rid of the temper? Cause I was, I had a pretty bad temper as a junior golfer and I broke a lot of wedges. And so, you know, and so like, and I remember kind of a lot of it was angst of my life and my family and whatever, and it was coming out through how it act out there. But I also really cared a lot. And then as I got older, I started to sort of calm down and, and sort of accept the reality, I guess. So how did you sort of, how did you adjust? How did your temper get better? Was there a turning point? Well, you nailed it with, you cared a lot. And I think that that's where these kind of emotions really stem from is, to me, I, I had to really put it into perspective that like, it wasn't a game of perfect. I was never going to hit every shot, you know, absolutely how I wanted to. And to me, if I didn't shoot 65, I was pissed, you know, and if I didn't win, I was upset. And, and really, those are kind of the things that, you know, help me transition from being a little more uh, level headed is just realizing that it's not a game of perfect and you're not going to hit every shot well and that you need to kind of roll with the punches and, and setting realistic expectations. So, you know, expectations were something that to me were a big hurdle is I would set my expectations way too high. And then if I didn't accomplish them, you know, the anger would kind of come out to express myself. Was there an inflection point there for you, Danny? Because I remember hearing about, I played, played quite a few rounds of golf over the last few years and you're like so fun and chill to play with. You shoot 65 or 73, it looks the same. You're really level-headed. And I remember thinking about like a Roger Federer and I, you know, I, reading about him and watching some videos he was a total hothead, crazy person when he came out on tour. And it's just like so crazy to think the most elegant, graceful, calm, best tennis player of all time was like a psycho out there as a junior tennis player and even in the beginning parts of his professional tennis career. And there was a point where he said, all right, I need to make a shift here. Was there, did you have something happen or was it just an evolution for you? Well, there's one thing that I could point to, but I don't know if it's appropriate to say on this podcast. No, this podcast is no limits, man. Just Bring well, there's, there's this one recreational drug that uh, is supposed <laughs> to really level you out and uh, it grows on a tree. <laughs> you can it's legal now, man. You don't got to be so taboo about it. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I think people get the point, but there, there wasn't really one moment. I think it comes with maturity. Uh, I, I got to an age in my life where I looked back on it and was like, what am I doing? Like, I'm embarrassing myself. I'm embarrassing my dad when I go play with him. Like, it's just not who I wanted to be. And, 
you know, looking back on my professional golf career, I think that my temper was probably uh, the biggest fault or, or my biggest problem that I had is like I said, I would set these goals. And if I didn't achieve them, you know, I would get upset. And, you know, that was the difference of shooting 70 and 74 or 65 and 69. Like, it, it doesn't have to be these huge differences to affect kind of the outcome, you know, a stroke per round over a four round tournament, you know, you're saving yourself four strokes, that could be the difference of, you know, first place or top 10, and hundreds of 1000s of dollars. So, you know, I, I wouldn't say that there was a single moment that to me, uh, you know, just evaporated my temper. It was just really a maturity thing that looked back on it and said, this isn't helping me. And you just kind of move on and you find something to realize that, hey, every shot matters the exact same. So if I hit it in the water or if I ace it, you know, essentially it's the same motion. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, if you could yeah. go if I could go back in some ways and tell my junior golf self, I remember the reason I broke a lot of wedges because I had very high expectations from like 120 and in. If it wasn't outside of 15 feet, I was like losing it. Cause I'm like, I, you know, practice for six hours and I'd always relate back to like yesterday I practiced for six hours. How could I possibly do that? You know, I didn't miss one out of 200 ball, whatever. So, and then I would carry those expectations into the shot. And then that would really affect if I go back and tell that guy, it's like, listen, like, you know, quit carrying expectations into the present constantly. And that, that was really what, when that expectation wasn't met, that was when there was a lot of, a lot of anger. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an easy thing to look back on and and talk about now but in the moment when, when you have a temper or you're hot-headed you know it's it's tough to uh cool off and take advice and kind of remove yourself and look at yourself and, and see what you need to change so you know to those people who have a temper you know my only advice is to kind of take a step back and ask yourself you know is it helping me Right. I, and I, and I yeah. think what you said too, it's really important. It, it is the idea that you care. I mean, there's not one great golfer or one great athlete that I haven't seen that didn't have a temper that they then harnessed and then were able to turn it into greatness. And, 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 and in so many ways, it is about expectations as well. I mean, we've all played with those golfers that are terrible players and they're pissed off the whole time. Their expectations aren't in align, alignment with reality. I mean, I'm all for the good, you know, F bomb or club throw or <clears throat> club slam. But as long as you can do that and then move on right away and put that behind you, uh, I think you'll be able to see results that way. But when you, when you hold on to that aggression and, and keep that kind of like hot-headed mentality through your entire round, it's so difficult to be successful like that. Well, and it's like, yeah. it's like you said, Danny. I mean, it's like you, that you were affecting. One thing I think about temper is that if it's internal and it and you can fuel it like a Sergio Garcia and like fuel it versus it is affecting everybody in your group. That's a whole different story. I mean, we've all had those rounds where you're playing with someone and you're like, God, it's so abrasive. I'm out here for four hours with this person. And in competitive golf, yeah, we can endure it and we have to learn our different strategies to kind of get through the round in solidarity. But then, you know, when you're playing a casual round and someone's pissed off all day, like you're like, what am I doing out here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think on the PGA Tour, a prime example is a guy like John Rom, you know, very fiery, you know, you can see the passion, you know, in his eyes and just kind of in his body language. And he's been known to kind of express himself in that manner, but he's able to kind of harness that energy and turn it into, 
you know, shot making ability or performance. And, you know, those are kind of the moments where you need to look at yourself and say, hey, like, is my aggression helping or hurting? And if it's hurting, how can I keep the aggression and use it in a way where, you know, I kind of use it as a release and then move on. So now I get it, Danny. There is this killer competitor inside of you, and you're really actually boiling inside when we go play, but you look like you're just chilling. You just learned to control that shit on the outside. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's a lot easier to play with a couple drinks in your hand uh, versus (laughs) when you're you're trying to uh, make a living. But, you know, like I said, to me, that was one of the biggest reflections is, you know, when I played professional golf, I was 22, 23, 24 you're, you're still a kid. Like you don't know what you want, what you need to do. And now, you know, in my thirties, I can look back on that and say, like my aggression did not help me at all. And Mm -hmm. setting realistic expectations could have helped. So, so Danny, my next question is, is the, is the country club system broken? Oh my God. 100%. Yes. Where do we even start on this topic? So I just don't think it's a realistic business model for today's younger generation. No one can pay these crazy initiation fees or high monthly fees and food and beverage minimums and access to only one golf course. It's just like this elitist mentality that you know, is probably doing more harm than it is good for golf, in my opinion. Hmm. And it's interesting you say that because, I mean, you, you grew up playing Brentwood, right? So you come from that world. It's, it's like you're you're coming from that world and now you have this uh, very different perspective. For sure. And I think that's kind of what led me to this perspective as well is, is I got mm-hmm. to experience it firsthand and I saw the good, bad and ugly that comes with a, a private club. And, you know, I would say that the best thing to me about private clubs is the community. It's the network of people that you're able to meet and create these friendships that last a lifetime. Outside of that, I can't really point to many things that are, you know, equate for what you pay to belong to a private club. So what's the problem? This is really interesting to me because, I mean, I agree with you. Like, it's so expensive. I come from Sweden, back home. Now, you know, my home course and another kind of sister course, 36 holes total. And they're incredible. Like, they're top 20 courses in Sweden. And you pay you know, five, $600 a year to play unlimited golf on two different courses, really good courses. Like I'm talking about courses that would compete with any public course and maybe probably better than most in Southern California. And they get, and they also only open seven months out of the year. Why is it, why is the financial model working there at $600 a year, unlimited golf? And then here you pay 1500 bucks a month and you pay $100,000 to join. Is there something wrong in the, finan- in the business model of country clubs? And they're all bankrupt, all the clubs as well. So you didn't get into that. It's tough. I mean, golf courses are a very, very expensive asset to maintain. You know, lots of staff, lots of water, you name it. There, there are countless expenses that, op- that come with operating a country club. And, you know, to me, I think one of the biggest problems that we have is just there's too much inventory in the market right now. There's too many private clubs. There's too many available tee times. And, and that's why you see clubs closing right and left in these B and C tier markets. And then when you come into markets like, 
Los Angeles and, and New York, you have this, you know, these very, very high-end premium clubs that it's not even about making money. It's about a, a statement that you belong there. And it's a, a status symbol more than anything else. So to me, I, I think that there's ways to make these business models work. And, and I think that it's about coming up with an offer that's attractive. Like these offers are not attractive here in LA to join a private club. It's about, it's a flex. You know what I mean? Like I belong to this club, uh, look at me versus, hey, I'm joining a private club because the value is there. The people are good. The golf course is great. The staff is friendly. The location is solid. So to me, a solution that I could see is creating more of these like alliances between private clubs where if you're a member at Brentwood, you get reciprocal access to Hillcrest, Bel Air, LACC, Satakoy, you name it, where you can create value by creating these partnerships. And, and to me, that's kind of the easiest thing that I could see be done to create more value and make joining a country club more, more valuable. The way I look at it, Danny, and you meant you, you said it earlier, you said tier, uh, you said B tier clubs, C tier clubs, A tier clubs. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah. I mean, look, who am I to call someone a B or C tier club? But I think a lot of it comes with location, right? Like, are you in a location that services a high density population? Are you in a metropolitan market? Are you on the outsides of your market? You know, do you have 36 holes versus 18 holes? Is your course well-maintained? You know, is, do you have a championship layout? You know, all these things kind of come into that grading scale. But yeah, I mean, you look at these B and C tier private clubs that are in, you know, the Midwest or in the outskirts of Riverside County or, or wherever you want to look, they're struggling because they can't attract enough members. It's too expensive or if the price, you know, if it is expensive, the value doesn't justify paying what they're asking. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it seems like it's gotten so much. I mean, I, I grew up at El Paso Country Club, right? And they hold the College All-American there every year. And it's, it's a famous Lee Trevino, Money Games, Ben Hogan, all this stuff. It was their stop on their way from the West Coast swing into, into Texas. And, you know, when I was a kid, it was like ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 to join. They were doing 30 rounds a year. Women and children couldn't tee off until after 2 p.m. And now it's zero initiation. They do no more than 10,000 rounds a year. People play with their shirts untucked and anyone can play. So like what I see that that's a common story. So restrictive and, and, oh, and prejudice and sexist, a lot of the clubs too. And then you shift to like, oh, anyone can come in because now we don't have any members anymore. And those boom times are over. Is there a generational shift too that's happened? Like where... Our, our activities and our habits have changed and we're, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. Has that led to sort of some of the stuff that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you make an interesting point in saying that like a lot of private clubs are very restrictive and, you know, maybe I'm looking at it through the lens of it's restrictive from the type of access you get to the golf course. Like you join a private club and you get to play the same 18 holes over and over and over again. But restrictive can, you know, come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. Like, it could be, you know, we don't like a certain type of people or, you know, we're known for, you know, only having, you know, this type of member or we don't like women playing here or we don't even like it when families are bringing their kids to the swimming pool or the tennis court. And, 
And to me, that that's just shrinking the potential market of people who could join your private club. So you start with price. You know, you've already kind of whittled down the people who could join it. And then you get into all these other facets that are like, we need your shirt tucked in. You can't use your cell phone. We don't want your wife to be here. We don't want your kids running around. You can't make noise. You can't even use the club at this time. Like, these are all things that make joining a private club so unattractive. And, you know, today, in today's society, I think the consumer has more power than they've ever had before. And they want what they want. And, you know, I, I think that there's a ways to get a lot of different people from different backgrounds, different wealth, you know, financial backgrounds and age gaps to all coexist at the same golf course. And so, so in your mind, Danny, tier A remains unchanged almost in a way. It's never going to change. Tier A will always be that Bel Air, that, that Hillcrest, that Pine Valley, those LA Country Club. They're, they're going to always be hard to get into, cost a lot, and they'll never change. For sure. Most- and, and primarily it's because they're not for profit clubs, they're equity clubs and they're not trying to make money. You know, it, it's them trying to have a, a playground for the rich and famous or a golf yeah. course that it is historic, you know, and I think that those are kind of the two uh, drivers for, for a tier private clubs is does it have a ton of history or, or is it a, a status symbol? But a lot of that too is because of, family wealth being passed down, right? It's not because of a young, younger generation, like my generation, less likely to join a club, not because necessarily like w- there's not as much money to be made, but it's just priorities. And I feel like the country club concept in you know the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I think family dynamics were different. Like you would stay at the club for all night and the wife was at home. Now that's not okay anymore. I know there's clubs like Bel Air and Lakeside and you know where it's a little bit different, but I think even 60-year-olds, oh, I got to go home to my wife. Like it's not just a change in our generation, but also the baby boomers are like, oh shit, like I have to be home and you know, do do my Well, there's do my duties. There's a more later. inclusive mentality nowadays, I think. People want to be able to come with their family and have more than golf as an activity. And, and a prime example that I think they've done a really good job is a place like Rolling Hills Country Club. You know, they kind of, they rebuilt it from the ground up and they targeted the, the young family, the person with multiple kids and they built in activities for those kids and they have a very welcoming uh, environment and, and it doesn't feel stuffy. So to me, that's kind of the future of private clubs, but there's still kind of, you know, tough spots in the model where, you know, I think private clubs should be able to be turned on and off. You should be able to pause your membership if you're traveling or, you know, whatever it may be, you know, the, the flexibility is so important nowadays that if you join a private club, like you're kind of stuck or committed for the rest of your life. And you talk about how these memberships have been passed down through generations. And a lot of young people are only able to join these private clubs nowadays because the membership was passed down to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you think though? You mentioned the cost of maintaining a golf course. So you have the A tier, the B clubs, maybe they start an alliance, but then is the business model going to support the same level of golf course or does it have to come down a little bit? 
personally, I, I think that it could, it depends. Like, you know, we're in a business where golf courses are priced in points, you know, on four. So there's a sliding scale there and that's pretty clear cut. And I don't think you have to re-educate the consumer on why a golf course costs more than another. I mean, it can be a location, it can be a condition, uh, it could be off of a variety of factors that drive the price up or down. So, you know, to me, creating these alliances within private clubs creates more value for existing members and makes the offering more attractive to prospective members. So to me, it could be anything, you know, thinking off the cusp here, you could create these networks of private clubs and say, hey, you know, this one's free to play for, for your membership. And if you want to go play, you know, one that may be deemed, you know, uh, a more premium club, you pay some nominal fee. So mm. I think that there's plenty of ways to go about it. I think even joining this like alliance or network that's an extension of your private club could be an additive cost to say, hey, I like my membership as is, but hey, if you want access to this network of clubs that I've pulled together, you know, it's an extra couple hundred bucks a month. So to me, it's just really, you know, listening to your members and trying to find ways to create more value. And to me, I, I just think that the country clubs have not done a good job of doing that. We have a great example of that, I guess, right here in LA, right? With the championship collection, you know, where they got these really great clubs that are all bonded together and they're all in that B tier category. Although some of those courses are better than some of these A tier golf courses. What do you think about that? Wrong. When I say B tier, it doesn't have to be derived off of the quality of the golf course. I mean, yeah. Location is a big factor of that. Mm -hmm. Like Hacienda, for example, that's uh, potentially an A tier course, but yeah. I think Satakoy falls in that category too. Like fantastic golf course, well maintained, great experience while you're on site. It's just that not that many people know about it, and it's kind of far from you know the metropolitan LA market yeah with this low traffic right now it's easy though that's why I joined up there during this time I'm like god this is easy I can just imagine when things go back to normal <laughs> hey I hope the traffic stays as is this has been nice you're like wait this is how LA freeways are supposed to be we're back in the 80s man yeah it's so are you actually talking to private clubs about I mean because you have a, a a really good position in the market to kind of be the mediator in in all of this are you able to actually you think in the future create these alliances I think the whole COVID pandemic is going to help four links start to move in that direction and my thought process there is that Currently, private clubs don't offer online tee times, and Four Links is all digital. Every tee time is booked online. So if a private club does not offer online tee times, for Four Links to work with them, it's a very white glove kind of concierge style reservation. They message Four Links, we message the club, we come back to them and say, hey, they have this time available. Uh, and then that's how the reservation is, is currently working with the private clubs we do have in our network. So as private clubs, move to online tee times for a safety and logistics standpoint, I think we'll be able to integrate with these clubs and pass reservations to them in real time. And also in a very opaque fashion where we're not stepping on the toes of existing members and we can kind of segment different times to say, Hey, four links members are able to play at certain private clubs, you know, weekdays between, you know, one and 4 PM or, on the weekends from you know noon to 3 p.m. 
and you're able to have those kind of controls digitally where you're unable to do that with a paper T-sheet. So I do think that the overall kind of industry is going to move towards this digital revolution of hosting everything online. So what is the, Danny, what does the image look like? Because I mean, for me, I think about growing up, what a country club was like, and it's like, oh, sweater vests, brunch on Sunday, dad's playing 18 holes, gets done and is pretty buzzed, you know, or that mom's by the pool or she's taking tennis lessons. Like you could just go into the stereotypes and we can go on for days about this. But what is the, what is the, in your mind, what does the modern club experience look like and how important is marketing? around that because I almost feel like that was sold to the American public in like the, you know, in the, in the fifties, like, Hey, like if you're going to be a country club member, you got to have the white picket fence. You got to have a sweater vest. You got to play, you know, got to have a respectable golf swing, swing inside to out. You know, it's like, there's this whole marketing around the country club experience and buying a home and the development. And I think it was all marketed, you know? And so my question is just the same way, like the Mad Men, the having a Manhattan middle of the day and that's business. And, you know, we have these two martini lunches and that shifted, that was marketing. So in my mind, like kind of how important is marketing and, and what is the club image of the future? Well, to your point, I mean, marketing is everything. It's, it's how you control the image of your asset or your business or, or your country club, you know? So to me, the marketing director is the one that's supposed to paint the picture of what they can expect when they become a member. So I totally agree with you that a country club kind of has this negative stigma around it and a stereotype that follows it. And the future of country clubs, I think is gonna come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. And to me, that's the interesting part is, you know, if you're someone who wants that environment, you know, I'm sure that there's a club you can find and join. But to me, I think that it's going much more family-oriented, community-based, and, and not so much focused on golf, but more on community activities that people can, can kind of extract value from being a member at a single location. So that's tennis, swimming, organized events like, you know, daycare and, and camp for your kids, to golf, to tournaments, to social golf leagues, to you. The list goes on. But to me, it's much more than just going to the club, playing golf, having drinks, and leaving. Yeah. So, Danny, then what about one thing I'm really curious about with Four Links and with just this, this whole concept we're talking about, one thing I kind of like about the country club process and, and golf in general is the vetting process. Obviously, it gets abused like crazy, and there's all these superlatives put in and everything else, but vetting, I think, is pretty important, like understanding someone's character. There's good parts of the vetting process that I actually enjoyed. Like, can you hold a conversation? Do, are you respectable? Are you honest? And they vet you for a year to get into a club. And just to understand who you are. I mean, I've had, I've had them. I went through the process of Bel Air and Wilshire and had members come to my house for dinner and getting to know my wife and kids and understanding who I was and how I was going to affect the club. And obviously, some of the criteria, like we know, underneath the surface is not necessarily in our minds just for this modern world. but I think that the vetting process, and in addition, can you play? Can you hit the ball? Can you, can you hold yourself throughout a round? What do you think about vetting versus just saying, hey, anyone can come? I joined Sadako and the next day I was playing. Yeah. I mean, to me, you, you look at kind of the, the community side of country clubs. And to me, 
I think that that's one of the biggest intangible values that come with joining a club is the network of people. Are they like-minded? You know, is something that is not, you can't put a dollar amount to the type of friends that you make or the business connections that you extract from joining a club. So I do think that vetting is very important to, to create the right community uh, if your club is going in that direction and if that's kind of the marketing angle that you're going for. But, you know, some clubs have this mandate of they need X amount of members who are paying Y to cover their operating expenses. And it's run, you know, much more like a business than it is uh, a equity club. You know, there are plenty of private clubs that at the end of the year, they divide up the operating expenses by all the members and they say, all right, this is what you owe. And, you know, to me, it's not about making money at some of those clubs versus the ones that just say, hey, if you can stroke a check for your, you know, monthly fee, you're in. So I think that there's two sides to that. That kind of story is, you know, it's really kind of what, what you're into and what you're looking for. I mean, you're not going to go to and join a club that you hate all the people that are there. So it's really kind of just what kind of environment are you creating for people? Well, and it's, I, I ask it because, you know, you know, there's this side of vetting that's so intense and then there's the other side that just wide open, go play, right? No matter how your level of skill is or your etiquette or how you interact with the entire golf course and club experience. And so you think about going and playing pickup basketball, for example, you don't know how to play basketball. You don't know the etiquette of it. And you show up to the Y where people are out there and they've been, they play and you try to just jump in a game, you're going to get kicked out of the place, you know, versus like with golf, you go in your own private tea time and go down your route. So I just, I'm curious, like, is it just one or the other? And how do we vet golfers? Really interesting what Leo says about Sweden. You have to have like a license to play golf. And so, you know, the process of educating golfers and teaching them the decorum, the traditions, the values, but without having it interjected with a bunch of incorrect social views that don't make sense for today's world. Yeah. And this brings up kind of a, a point about private clubs that I think is one of the biggest flaws is you're never going to make everyone happy. And when you have a membership club, there are always people who are going to be like, that guy has his shirt untucked, or this guy was on the phone, or this guy drove too close to the green, or like this guy cut in line before I could get my smoothie in the morning. It's like, these things are so irrelevant in the grand scheme of it. But I say that because you're always going to have that kind of dilemma and that type of feedback. So to me, I think that it does kind of create an elevated importance on vetting and making sure that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're trying to build an image for your club and market it a certain way, it is important to vet the members and make sure that they are like-minded and they're of a similar skill set or they understand and respect golf. So I can, I can make an argument for both sides, but I think then again, it just goes to, to your point about what is the marketing angle and the image and brand that they're trying to create for their club. Mm -hmm. hmm. Is this is a similar situation on the East Coast? Is, is this happening over there as well? Is this nationwide or like in terms of the clubs, like is it happening on the East Coast too? Is the same issue, same, same kind of evolution of of the market yeah i mean i i think we're seeing it all around the country and in new york is a prime example you have your elitist private clubs that are not struggling that have wait lists you know huge initiations 
And then you go to Ohio and you have golf courses closing and Missouri. So, you know, each golf course is very unique and individual to their market and the potential members in their geographic location. So to Max's point about marketing, I think you really have to take a deep dive into where are you located? What type of golf courses do we have? What's the average household income? You know, what's the demographic profile? And then create the business model off of that. So basically the next decade is going to be golf courses continue to close down at a rapid rate. Not a lot of golf courses being built. A tier country club is going to remain and stay the same as they always been. B and C are going to start to see this hybrid where you have alliances and four links kind of start to enter the market where maybe you're going to be able to play private clubs, even if you're not a member. And, and that's going to become kind of all together and then all online. Is that kind of the next 10 years, do you think? And how fast do you think it's going to go? I definitely think that that is the direction. I think that there will always be that A tier private club. That's not going anywhere. And then I think the B and C tier clubs are going to have to, you know, iterate and find a new option. I think you're going to see a lot of these B and, tier, B and C tier clubs kind of band together and create these networks of, you know, sister clubs where you can get reciprocal access and you pay one initiation to, mul- to access multiple facilities. And I do think everything is going to go very digital. You know, you click a button, you show up and you get your tea time. I think that having online tea times removes that, you know, banter between members of, hey, I was here first. Like, let me get out on the tea. It's like, no, I have a tea time. You can see that it's evident, like it's all documented. And I think it helps kind of take away some of the like back and forth that comes with members and allows you to have like a much more seamless kind of operations from, you know, the, the pro shop standpoint. So to me, I, I think we've already seen more clubs close than open. You know, if you take kind of a holistic look at, at the United States, you know, clubs are closing faster than they are opening. And I do think that that's a good thing. A prime example is you, you look at what's happened as some golf courses have remained closed due to kind of the COVID pandemic. Other golf courses, because of the shrinkage of available inventory, golf courses are sold out right now. You, know, you can't even book a tee time for the next five, six, seven days out. And that's just because the demand for golf is now on an equal playing field to the available inventory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't go out to a restaurant. <laughs> you can't go out to a bar. You can't, you know, can't go to a concert. or The entertainment options are just gone, right? And, well. and I, I think... Golf is going to emerge from this health crisis as the safest activity you can do for all age groups. So I do think golf is going to see a massive surge in, in the coming years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny, yeah. I got a question about like your demo split, you know, with four links members. You know, one thing that's interesting for me and when we talk golf's hard. And so getting into the game is difficult. I almost feel like if somebody was like, where should I? I want to start playing golf. I'm not going to necessarily sign up for four links or sign up for a country club. I'm going to go look for something like UGP to get started. And it's interesting when we, in our demographic split and looking at the customers that come through our doors, people are like, oh man, it's like really advanced. You know, you must have a lot of like tour players and really it's, you know, 2% of 5% of our market is anybody below a five handicap. 
And then there's a huge uh, portion of our customers that are beginners learning the game and trying to also not just learn the skills of the game, but the etiquette and the social scene and how to integrate into it all. What, what, what's your demographic split with four links and, and, and what do you view, how do you view golf competency as part of part of the plan? Well, I think we've, we can kind of break our users into two different categories. One, you have like your avid golfer on one side of the spectrum who probably uses the four links platform to book their tee times. And then two, you have your, you know, recreational golfer who may not play much golf, but likes watching it, is interested in the sport. They're the fantasy golf user who may come to Four Links to bet on the PGA Tour and potentially use their winnings to, to book their first tee time. So to me, that, those are kind of two different user profiles, someone who's going to play fantasy golf on Four Links and someone who's going to book their tee time on Four Links. But kind of switch, you know, focusing on the person who books their tee time, you know, our average, you know, the, the customer profile for Four Links is anywhere from 28 to 40, uh, a non-country club goer, uh, someone who plays golf regularly, probably our, our average subscriber plays about 2.5 times a month, you know, and, and that's more than double industry average. So, you know, someone who's using four links it, is an enthusiast. They're, they're aware of golf. They have the etiquette down, you know, they have clubs, you know, they know the landscape of, of the, the best clubs around. So they're pretty versed and they don't need much kind of ground up education. So that, that's kind of how I would break, break out the two. And, and that's one thing we've always wanted to market Four Links as it's open to anybody. You know, anybody can come and use Four Links and, and enjoy the tools that we've built to book their next round of golf. And that's kind of the overarching thesis of what we're trying to accomplish. You have any thoughts mm -hmm. on on sort of how you leverage technology to to faster convert those non golfers that are doing the fantasy golf into actually booking tee times? Yeah, I mean that's kind of how the whole idea started. Is we know that fan engagement on the PGA Tour level is definitely the the wave of the future. I mean, you listen to the PGA Tour commissioner and all the different kind of thought leaders in the industry. They all are pointing to sports betting and in-game betting where does Phil Mickelson get up and down out of this bunker? And that's something you could bet on. Does someone make this putt? And I think golf is very well positioned to host that kind of gaming because the pace in between shots, it allows you to, you know, check the, the stats or the odds. and you know, it's not like someone's dribbling down the basketball court and chucks up a three or, or throws an alley-oop. So the, the pace of golf is very well positioned for, for in-game betting. And I think that that's the future of the sport from the fan engagement standpoint. So we want to be able to speak to two different profiles. The person who is interested in watching golf, but wants to take that passion for watching golf and turn it into a physical round of golf. Uh, it is kind of how we look at the fantasy side of four links. We want you to be able to easily draft a team of PGA tour players, watch, you know, them compete and take your winnings and immediately be able to book a tee time. I kind of compare it to like a, a top golf, you know, top golf is a very, very great way to introduce someone to the game. I would say majority of people who go to top golf, probably don't play golf regularly. They've been coaxed to go there by their friend who loves to go, you know, play golf and maybe it's a birthday party or who knows what it is. But it's that first touch point 
in a very, very fun and social environment that will lead someone to want to play their first like uh, green grass round of golf. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and I think one thing that I just thought of is going back to the 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 future of golf is I think ninety eight percent of golf courses in Europe is all semi private. You know, there's five hundred courses in Sweden and one I know of one private club. They're all semi private. And then the best courses in Scotland, they're all semi private. So you can be a member and it's free to play or unlimited golf, but then anybody can go play. So I think that might also kinda merge into that that uh, group of clubs that we talked about yeah i mean to me i've got kind of like a a beef with the word semi-private like <laughs> you're not semi-private if you're letting people play golf like so uh, i guess yeah. public, public course <laughs> you're public with a membership option yeah exactly private. so yeah to me i mean being that I, I work in the golf industry you hear all these people talk about like it's you know an exclusive private club it's a high-end daily fee it's a municipal course and then they fall on this semi-private category and i'm like it's not semi-private like private it's true that that's not a word either in sweden or anywhere in europe it's just my american side it's it's a public with you get your own locker you know yeah or i mean you can even point to golf courses here the some of the best public daily fee golf courses Take Rustic Canyon, for example, out in Moorpark. You can join Rustic Canyon as some sort of card holder or member, but it's a public golf course. So to me, I think it's smart and a great marketing strategy to offer your own membership, but I just don't believe in the semi-private terminology. I always, I always tell him, I said, if Europe's so much better than America, then just go back, Leo. (laughs) Well, my roommate in college, Espen Kofstad, plays on the European tour, and he was from Norway. So I'm very familiar with the Scandinavian thought process. All and, right. And, and one thing that I can point to is that the Scandinavian countries are ahead of the curve in not only their design, but the way that they approach kind of the logistics, different business operations. So, yeah, and, and public health, <laughs> it looks like as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's, I mean, I wouldn't be here if, if uh, I wanted to go back. Okay. So last question, Danny, a theoretical question. You have this opportunity to play any course in the world and you have the opportunity to get a lesson from anybody dead or alive, go play 18 holes with one person and then go have a beer with someone else after that. So three different people and what course? So these these can all happen individually. These are individual experiences. On the same day, yeah. On the same day. Yep. So there's no flying. So they all have to be like geographically convenient. No, no, this is like, this is a, you're in a dream. This okay, is like yeah. anything okay. can happen. You can just hop from Japan to, to New okay. York. So, you know, the, the one course that I would want to play, and I will say want to play again, is a friend of mine, PJ Fielding, took me to Terra Edi in New Zealand. And I've never, ever been to a place like that. Simple, elegant, fantastic golf, very remote, naturally beautiful. So Terra Edi is my answer on where I'd want to play golf if there was one golf course. Uh, it looks beautiful there. It's just mind-blowing. It, it, like Semi-private? <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm, <laughs> I guarantee they do not make money. <laughs> 
So that's uh, question number one of where I would go play. If I yeah. could uh, take a lesson from anybody. Huh. Could be outside of golf too. In like. Could be in business or, hmm. I mean, you can bring Jeff Bezos out there if you want or whatever. Well, I definitely admire Warren Buffett. I would say that I would love to play golf with Warren Buffett. I think like his investing strategy and his overall just very calm demeanor. And also he seems to be very philanthropic. Uh, I think I could learn a lot from him and I would love to spend 18 holes with Warren Buffett. So that's that question. Uh, okay. And then the, so the lesson then. So the lesson before you play with Warren Buffett. Okay. Hmm. This is a tough one. Because I mean, George Gankus has always been my coach from day one. <laughs> I've never been huge in lessons. So to me, he's always been one that's kind of been my resource and sounding board. Huh? I mean, you can, you can get Gucci for an hour with George if that's what you want to yeah. do. I mean, I, I've already taken a lesson with George, so I'm not going to throw him in there. But uh, God, I don't know that many golf instructors, to be honest. I, I might have to say UGP, you know, Leo Rooney over here, get a nice <laughs> lesson, tune up. Might have to get a ping pong lesson from Leo. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, actually. What kind of lesson we were talking in, about. in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm down. Then who, I'm down to go. Who are you having a beer yeah. with, Danny, at, once this, is, this magical day ends? Hmm. Man, I would say I'm going to have a tequila with this person, not a beer. But uh, definitely think I would be trending to an athlete. I, I think that I really like the dynamic of them being able to, to leverage golf amidst their like, professional career uh, as a release or an outlet. So I'd probably look to someone like a, a Steph Curry or even a Steve Kerr. I feel like a Steve Kerr might be a good one because you got like a, a wealth of information from both a player and a coach's perspective. So Steve Kerr is my answer there. Yeah. And his, his dad was a U.S. ambassador, right? Or something like that. His dad was like, um, I think the U.S. ambassador to Lebanon or something crazy. And like that. he went to Pali High in the Pacific Palisades. So he's a local boy. That's Steve Kerr is a really good one, man. Oh, I mean, shout just, out Steve Kerr. If you're listening, let's get <laughs> up and have a tequila post round. Awesome. Danny, thanks so much for taking the time, brother. Really, really appreciate you and what you're doing for golf and, you know, and everything that you're up to and your sweet boys. So thanks so much for taking the time for us. Thank you for having me and all that you do for, for the community here in Southern California. So huge fan of UGP and honored to be on the podcast. Appreciate it, man. Take care. All right, guys. Talk to Later, you. brother. Thanks.